0: at the very end of the Bible, almost the very last pages, uh, because we're in chapter 20. Um, If you don't have a copy of the Bible, but you would like to follow in one, uh, then do raise a hand and one will be brought to you. Just keep it up for a moment. There's, I think, one hand down that side. Okay, when well, I've been preaching over the last weeks and months, we've been uh, in a series in the book of Revelation. Uh, we don't have very many chapters to go, uh, which is very exciting because the end is amazing. Um, <laughs> the whole book's amazing, isn't it? But anyway, um, we are going to uh, look today at some, if not all, of, of chapter 20. So I'll just uh, start reading there from verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay. Uh, I've got to be careful with this bit. A little bit more. Is the glass... You know where this is going, don't you? Is the glass half full or half empty? Half full? Hands up for half full. Okay. Positive bunch. Wonderful. Hands up for half empty. You are allowed to disagree. Hands up if you kind of are not sure and you want another option. Got a few options. You could be you could be the opportunist rather than the optimist or the pessimist. Optimist sees the glass is half full, pessimist sees it's half empty. Opportunist thinks, if I bottle that, um, maybe with a little bit of ice and lemon, on a hot day like today, I could sell that (laughs) in botanical gardens after the meeting. Um, the, The realist might just say, yes, there is some glass, there is some water, and actually there's some air. The scientist would say, the glass is full, you numpty, um, because it's got some water in it and it's got some air in it. Um, but typically and traditionally, I think we can still stick with our, our two basic options. It's, it's half full or, or it's half empty. And um, <clears throat> the way in which you responded apparently could indicate kind of your general outlook on life and all things, the universe and everything. Uh, maybe that's stretching a little bit too far. In chapter 20 of the book of Revelation... What's the link? What's the link? In chapter 20, of uh, the book of Revelation, we are seeing what happens at the very end, the very end of history. Obviously, it's not the end of the book, uh, because we get chapters 21 and chapters 22, um, but it is the end of chapter 20. It's the end of time. In this chapter, therefore, we see that God, who is seated on the great white throne is bringing the current world order to its conclusion. And when we get into chapter 21, we're going to see that we see there introduced this new vision of a new heaven and a new earth. The world that God always had planned. Uh, No sin, uh, no sickness, no sadness, no injustice. Nothing in that new creation that could possibly tarnish it in any way at all. Therefore, before we get to chapter 21, we see that God is dealing with the last things that could and have tarnished the current world order. We see in this passage then the the end of Satan, or to be more precise perhaps, his ultimate destiny, Um, and we see a a day of judgment um, as well. Now, the question that might arise is, okay, well, ultimately, this is, this is good news. Ultimately, we're heading to chapter 21. The kind of question that perhaps the church is is, is uh, posed in, in this chapter is, how do we see things panning out in the build-up to that last terrifying but also glorious day where we read later on that earth and sky fled, or was it earth and sea? Um, earth and sky. Earth and sky fled from the presence of the great I am that we've just been singing about and we've just been singing to. And there's this day of judgment, but God is bringing in um, his uh, new creation in its absolute fullness. How do we see things panning out in the build up to that day? The challenge of this chapter is it's the most difficult in the whole book. Hurrah. Um, nevertheless, the whole book is there to encourage us, is to strengthen us in our faith, is to help us to persevere. There's blessing in this book. We, we read of one of them in, in verse six. There are six statements, uh, sorry, seven statements in the whole of Revelation that begin, blessed are, blessed are the. And right at the beginning of the, of the book in chapter one, we've, we've seen blessed are those who read this book, blessed are those who hear it. Blessed are those who, who take to heart the message that's written in it. So it's difficult, it's a source of controversy, a lot of ink has been spilt, a lot of time has been spent grappling with how to understand this passage and that's what we're going to be uh, looking at because it contains this period called the thousand years or uh, the millennium during which Satan is bound. Martyred Christians come to life and reign with Christ. However, there are different ways of understanding that. So first of all, what we're going to do is, is look at the millennium, the thousand years. After that, we're going to spend a bit of time focusing on the martyrs. And we might conclude with just a few words on the, the final battle, the final conflict that really doesn't take place as we've, as we've seen before. But we'll get to that a little bit later. First of all, the millennium, the thousand years, the thousand years during which Satan is bound and martyred Christians are living and reigning with Christ. Um, As Mark mentioned earlier on, we have just started last Tuesday uh, the intro course that we do every now and again, uh, about three times a year as an introduction to what we believe. And so if people have come along to the church and they want to find out a little bit more, uh, we run that as a way of people being able to find out what are the things that are key to, um, to to faith and life in, in City Church, Sheffield. Discussions on the millennium are not part of that course. Um, this, this is an important area. At the same time, it's important that we don't get distracted by controversy. But we're going to look at the three main ways of understanding that passage um, that have developed in, in, in the history of the church. There are many that vary from this, but we're going to look at three. I'm going to hang my hat on one of them, semi-tentatively, um, and we'll, we'll take it from there. The first is, is called, and forgive the terminology, but we're just going to have to bear with it. The first is called post-millennialism, post-1000 years. This is a way this passage might be understood by some. That, in a nutshell, the church and the gospel is going to grow and grow and grow and grow in influence and reach over the whole earth, uh, reaching towards um, the end of history. So, the the influence of, uh, of of the Christian church on society will grow. That will then lead to a thousand year period. That thousand years might be literally a thousand years, or figuratively, just a big amount of time, when it can be said that Christ is fully reigning on the earth with martyrs who have died but been raised to life uh, reigning on the earth with them. But during that thousand year period, then Satan is so fully bound that there's there's no real opposition to the spread of the gospel. This is like a a a golden age is is coming for the church. Post that millennium, Jesus then comes again. That's why it's called post-millennialism. Jesus comes again after this thousand-year golden age of Christendom on the face of the planet. Um, That is quite an optimistic view. That's the kind of glasses half full there. Ultimately, every view is agreed. Jesus is coming back. Jesus will bring a final judgment. Jesus will defeat every foe, remove every uh, opposition to his reign, and bring in our wonderful new heavens and a new earth. On that, we can all wonderfully agree. This is this view, post-millennialism, is quite an optimistic view. It's quite appealing, therefore. It kind of takes um, Jesus' words to the disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Kind of really looking to that, um, there's a great deal of of optimism, optimism, therefore, and faith and adventure. We believe that then the the gospel will be growing with ultimately um, little, and therefore, in the end, absolutely none, uh, no opposition to it. An appealing view... Perhaps some people don't have it now so much because what happened in the 20th century is two world wars happened and people tried to process two world wars with this kind of increasingly rosy view of the future and were less sure. Also, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1 would tell us well, in the last days, things won't necessarily be effortless and only positive. So in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1, Paul writes, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and so on. So that's Paul's warning that mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. It's tricky to see that if you're a post-millennialist. However, we've got to do justice to that view because that view um, is the view that has motivated and encouraged a tremendous amount of missionary endeavor um, to go and share the gospel around the world. So a lot of the heroes of faith um, in semi-recent church history have subscribed to that view and they've gone boldly and they've seen people won for Christ. So there's a a fruitfulness in the lives of those who've held that view. Therefore, we need to be humble. Um, There might be post-millennialists in this room. You may not have realized it before today. Um, That's why we need to approach this passage with some kind of humility. This view, post-millennialism, kind of golden age is perhaps been, therefore, more popular in times of revival, where perhaps it's easier to imagine that, well, so many people are coming to Christ and things are improving, that the society is changing. We envisage, therefore, that that, that will happen, but in a more tremendous and glorious way than even we see in revival. So that's one view. The next two views are a little bit more glass-half-empty. Um, but they also have their, um, it's also important to understand. One is called, uh, the second rather, is called pre-millennialism or classic pre-millennialism. This is a little bit different. Rather than seeing Jesus return after a thousand years, this sees Jesus returning before a thousand years. And what happens in this view is that the Church Age continues, but actually Church Age then runs up against something called the Great Tribulation, which is really grim. But at the end of the, this Great Tribulation, Jesus comes and then he inaugurates on the earth this thousand year rule. Um, so there's Tribulation, Jesus returns, uh, there. Bringing in a thousand year reign of his kingdom on earth again Jesus reigning on the earth with with resurrected believe, believers at which point Satan is bound uh, And though some rebel there's a final battle when Satan is finally dealt with this view uh, Is more popular in times of persecution Some would say because in times of persecution we're kind of seeing yet. There is quite a lot of tribulation there is in other words pressure on god's church this isn't easy it's not easy to be a christian right now and um and you could see that perhaps some who were um to whom the book of revelation was written uh, we know that in some churches they were, were really going through it um and so they would foresee then that a, a millennium happened after christ's return beforehand it was quite tough okay hang on in there we got one more view I'm going to hang my hat and then we're going to look at the rest of the passage. The third view is amillennialism, which basically is a way of saying a thousand years is not a period to come, but it's a way of describing church life right now. The church age, a thousand years, a, a, a symbolic full period of time in which it can be said in one sense, and we'll look at that in a bit, Satan is already bound. And then, following that, at the very end, for a short time, he will be unrestricted. He'll gather the nations in unified opposition to Jesus, only though to be judged and doomed for all time. Okay, there we go. Three views. You may not have already. You may not have known which you were, which view you kind of held before today. You may still not know. I don't want you to be too distracted, but I will kind of spell out how I feel this passage can be best be understood. And that is amillennialism. In other words, right now is the thousand years that this passage speaks of. It begins, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven. We've seen throughout the book of Revelation any number of different visions. And those visions have been kind of showing us a picture, one view or one angle on... The whole of AD history. In other words, Jesus has died. Jesus has been resurrected and he's ascended to heaven. And there are a whole number of visions then that show us what's going on between that point in history and the very final point when Jesus will return and usher in uh, the, the new heavens and the new earth. And these visions have explained to us what have been going on in between. This thousand year period then, I saw again And so, in the recent chapters of Revelation, we've seen dealt with the different sources of opposition to God's ultimate rule. And so, we've already seen Babylon get dealt with. We've already seen her judged. Babylon is a civilization under, uh, not under God's rule. Right, so Babylon has been dealt with. More recently in chapter 19, we've seen a final battle and we've seen that God just dealt with the beast and the false prophet that we've looked at before. Now we get another view. Now we get another angle. Now we get another perspective on this same climatic moment in history The same final battle, but this time we're being shown, look, yes, all those things have been dealt with. Now what I want you to show, now what I want you to see is Satan's ultimate downfall, his complete doom. Everything, all opposition to God's rule and reign gets dealt with. Uh, We see that an unnamed angel comes along, seizes and binds um, Satan, And holds him in the abyss. It shows, if nothing else, that Satan is a pretender. He is not God. And so, how does he get dealt with? And that, as we see there, Um, God sends an angel. God sends an angel whose name we don't have to go and wrap him up uh, for a thousand years. He's a pretender to God's throne, and God has him bound. Well, in what way? Can it be described that right now, the source of all evil, Satan himself, is bound? How can that describe the current situation? Because Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that we have an enemy who is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That describes in some ways Satan's Activity, um, right now. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, describes where, how he is scheming. What he often wants to do is bring about schemes that bring disunity in God's church. He'll, he'll sow seeds of, of disharmony. People not getting along with each other. And Paul's saying, look, don't be outwitted by his schemes. Don't be outwitted by what he's trying to do amongst you. Last week, Sam was preaching on forgiveness here in the, in the central congregation. That's one way in which the enemy can seek to outwit God's people, just by encouraging any amount of unforgiveness. Oh, it doesn't really matter. Um, I, it, it's, it's hurt, but I'll just try and brush it off. And, and what can happen instead of actually forgiving people, we can harbor <laughs> resentment that becomes... Um, a problem and more people get defiled by the bitterness and resentment that's kind of grown up because forgiveness never happened or hasn't happened yet and so paul writing there says don't be outwitted by that we need to not be outwitted by that um that forgiveness is important uh an important matter 2 corinthians 11 and verse 14 describes how satan is uh can masquerade he's masquerading. He can pretend to be an angel of light whilst only actually being um, an angel of darkness. And so he's attempting to fool, to trick, to make ideas seem very appealing and very attractive, even though kind of like a sugar-coated grenade. Yeah, just just bite on this. This will be really tasty. And then bang, he just wants to cause... um, uh, Problems. He wants to draw people away from the message of Jesus um, as much as he could be able to. So we see his activity there. And Ephesians six verse sixteen describes um, flaming arrows that the enemy might just want to um, fire at God's people. Flaming arrows of of accusation and maybe of temptation. And we were hearing, even hearing that, uh, that encouragement earlier on, that whilst in life we might feel we've been rejected in some way, God says to all his people, everyone who receives the message of Jesus receives the right to become his child. And we know from, uh, from other parts of Scripture that God's people are the ones that he has chosen. Not rejected, but chosen. Not rejected, but, but drawn in. Satan is a rejected being, and he would love it if as many people on this earth, and particularly God's people, feel rejected again. It, it, it rather than bringing community and togetherness, it can sow seeds that makes us feel, oh, I'm isolated, um, and uh, and uh, kind of people are against me, perhaps, and I don't feel at ease amongst other other of God's people. Um, he wants to sow those seeds and we need to guard ourselves from all of those things. That we'll see. now what does the Bible say? What, what, who am I in Christ? If I'm in Christ, who does that make me? Um, not a rejected being like Satan, but chosen, dearly loved and accepted, acceptable uh, to God because of Jesus. And uh, even in Revelation, we've seen that Satan would appear to be, in this present age, very active. Though defeated by Jesus and awaiting his own doom, in the present, we saw it in, in Revelation chapter 12, that he is uh, pursuing the church. Again, trying to make her life uh, difficult. And he knows that his time is short, and therefore he's trying to do, uh, cause as much mayhem as he can. Well, let's go back to that question then. If all of that, in the view of the New Testament, is going on, how can it be said that in the present age, he is bound? And this passage describes it in no uncertain terms. He is seized. He is bound for a thousand years. He's thrown into the abyss and locked. uh, And that's locked and it's sealed over him. How can it be said that that is... um, Happening right as happened right as we speak well because of this matter here that's The whole purpose this very vivid language that revelation uses is to help us to understand uh, a very precise and and particular thing That satan is completely restricted in this to keep him from deceiving the nations to keep him from doing that which we he would particularly like to do which is to gather all the nations of the world uh, or to gather people from the whole globe in united opposition to Jesus and God's church, so when the thousand years is over, that's what he's enabled to do: to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, who are regarded as the um, the, the kind of ultimate end time uh, op- opponents of God's uh, of God's people and of, of God Himself, gathered for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth. And surrounded the camp of God's people, the city of the city He loves. Satan would love to bring this climax um, prematurely, to do as much damage as he could possibly do. But God is in charge. Satan does not have, in any situation, a free hand. He likes to bring things to a head early, in but he knows because he knows that his time is short. He's full of rage and wants to reduce. Humanity's opportunity to respond to God and to know his love. But God is not rushed. God is not worried. God is patient. God wants to maximize the opportunity that the human race has to turn to him and to know his love and to know forgiveness and to come into the the bride of Christ, to be part of his people forever. And ever. Satan is restricted because God is in charge. Even when the restrictions are lifted at the very end of time, for this very short period of time at the very end, all that achieves ultimately is Satan's own demise. Figuratively, this great army gathers around God's people. There could come a time in the last days when to feel, to be a Christian and to be in the church will feel like we are just completely surrounded by a, a world which is violently hostile and opposed to the message of Jesus. But if that moment were to come, even in our own lifetime, the encouragement is, well, what happens? Again, we've seen it before. We'll see it again now. The armies gather. There's this moment of, of, of great vulnerability it would seem for god's people but ultimately there is no battle there is no final conflict in the sense that god just deals with his opponents fire came down from heaven and devoured them and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of of burning sulfur that place which was prepared for him and all his agents we've seen it throughout the book of revelation God wins. There is no threat. There is no way in which his ultimate plan for the whole of history can be thwarted. And so whatever life involves in the here and now, whether the the glass is half full or the glass is half empty, uh, whether we are rejoicing, whether we are grieving, we know that all things are under God's ultimate control. His plan is cannot be thwarted that should comfort and reassure god's people he's in charge um we may look at it more next time rather than on this, this occasion but we we see again that god in verse 11 we see uh as, as as john describes then i saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it reminds us of chapter four and for and, and then chapter five as well where we see yes god is on the throne. God is completely in charge. God will bring all things to this glorious conclusion. God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. He has to deal with evil first. He has to deal with his opponents first. But where is this heading? This is heading to chapter 21. It's not in doubt. It's chapter 22, God's glorious kingdom of which we are a part will not be thwarted raises a question in the here and now because whilst that is the case ultimately right here and perhaps as those who were first receiving this book the churches in Asia Minor uh, modern-day Turkey some of those were really uh, going through tough times. It can raise the question, well, yeah, okay, everything is heading through to its glorious conclusion. God is in control of absolutely all things, but what about those who die for their faith? What about those who are their faithful witnesses of God, but they lose their life for the gospel? Is God a bit careless? He's focused on the ultimate objective, the big picture, his ultimate plans and purposes, but not on the lives of the people in his kingdom, because people have died for the testimony of Jesus, or for the word of God. Is God like a company director, focused on performance targets, sometimes riding a little bit roughshod over his employees? Yeah, fixed on the goal, fixed. On the, the end point and the success of his, uh, his company, if you like. But yeah, riding a little bit roughshod. Some employees, lots. They're a bit bad, really, to be honest. Some get a short straw. Some really are, um, dealt a bad hand. Or is God like an army officer? A commanding officer who, yeah, kind of sacrifices a few units in order to make some strategic gains. This is where I'm heading and you are conveniently placed for me just to kind of use as I please and a bit expendable because people have lost their lives. Um, people have been martyred for their faith. In, in recent years, obviously the church had to uh, experience that as well. And so Satan is restricted. The gospel is advancing, but whilst the gospel is forcefully advancing, there are also the violent who seek to take hold of it. We've had example of Antipas, who's mentioned in the early chapters of Revelation. uh, He lived in Pergamum, or certainly when Jesus is speaking to the church in Pergamum, he's saying, I know what's going on in your hometown, and it would appear to be at least that It's as though Satan has his throne where you live. And Antipas, my faithful witness, has died. How are they to make sense of that? Yes, God wins. God's bringing everything to a glorious conclusion. But Antipas has died. Lost his life for the faith. And in the early church, there were 3,000 added in a day. Wonderful. And then, oh... Stephen. Stephen, a man full of the, full of faith, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. His life is cut short early because he's martyred for his faith. I think, but these guys, they were faithful, a part of God's people, and surely they had more to give. Surely they, they could have Yielded more fruit in God's kingdom. But they've kind of been taken out early. And the church is left to try and. Kind of go through these. Puzzling situations. Where faithful witnesses in God's kingdom. Are taken out of action. Their lives seemingly. Cut short. And we might ask ourselves. well, Surely they had more to give. This passage here. Provides us. With a glimpse of heaven's perspective. In verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. When we see thrones in the book of Revelation, unless it's Satan's throne, which apparently was in Pergamum at the time, thrones are in a heavenly realm. Again, we've seen that in chapter four, where we see the throne of God and then 24 other thrones around his throne uh, on which are seated the elders and they bow down, they cast their crowns before the Almighty God. And here we see some more thrones, thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. In other words, and we get this description then of martyrs living with a thousand years with Christ. Who become priests of God and of Christ, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. In other words, whilst those who've lost their faith, or lost their life for their faith, could have been killed in obscurity, the veil is getting drawn back so that we can actually see that whilst they were martyred for their faith, they haven't actually lost their life they are living in heaven with christ and reigning with him also in other words the tables are turned they appeared to be on the losing side they appeared to be utterly defeated they appeared to be pathetic really in the might before the might of rome or whoever else is responsible for their martyrdom. However, God is saying, no, just look at this a different way. From an earthly perspective, we could see, yes, they've, they've lost their lives. They've been cut short. Surely they had more to give. And whilst we don't know exactly what's involved, Jesus is revealing to us here that they're, they're raised and they're living with Christ in heavenly realms. Involved somehow, and we have to be cautious, saying we know exactly what's taking place, but involved somehow in the rule and reign of God right now in his kingdom. Perhaps what we could say at the very least is then, this is not bland inactivity. Being taken home early with nothing really else to do. Jesus has... One kingdom, he has one family. Some members of his family are on the earth, and some members of his family are in glory. Some members of his kingdom are on the, on the earth, perhaps on the front line, seeing the kingdom of God, play, playing their part in seeing the kingdom of God advance in the here and now. Some members of God's kingdom and God's family are in glory, still in some way taking part. Now, please let's be under no mistake. We don't pray to anyone other than Jesus. We don't get into all that kind of speculation about exactly what's going on. But this is reassuring, comforting reminder for God's people. I suppose a question can come does this only apply to martyrs? Does this only apply? Well, it's strange because it even says, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus. We understand by that, that this is not just referring to people who've died for their faith by being beheaded, but martyrs generally, people who have uh, lost their lives um, or whose lives have been taken. But we know that there are many faithful witnesses uh, like Antipas, who didn't lose their lives, and in fact, Revelation includes promises for God's people that would point to this blessing being not just for those who have who have been martyred. So, in Revelation two, in verse twenty-six, for example, to him who overcomes and does my will to the to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with nine scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. So a promise there of receiving authority by overcoming. Jesus overcame. We were singing it just a moment ago. He, at the cross, he overcame. He overcame by giving up his life. There's a promise that if we uh, are required, as it were, in this life to do the same, um, we have that. But it doesn't just hold out for those uh, who are martyred. Uh, similarly, in, in Revelation 3... And verse 21, to him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the promise is for overcomers. The blessing of verse 6 is true of those who've already gone to be with the Lord. So Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think we can say the same. There's great blessing for those who are called home to be with Jesus. Um, and that applies uh, to them. Um, and blessing for us too. So is the glass half full or half empty? The important thing is not to get um, distracted by academic discussions and so on. We still need to study the scriptures and kind of come to a, a clear mind ourselves. How does this exactly pan out? I've, I've hung my hat, as I've said, on the fact that this thousand years symbolizes the present age, where in one sense, Satan is already bound. There'll be a time coming when he will be released, able to deceive the nations, gathering them for one final conflict. Um, Where it could appear that God's people are surrounded, but there is no threat for God's plans and purposes. What it perhaps says to me is that in the life of God's church, in the here and now, in this present age, we can, if we're not careful, just view things in a glass half empty type way and be drawn into a pessimistic way of thinking where we are very aware of setbacks we're very aware of challenges we're aware of things that have disappointed us and maybe that starts to to set the tone that's what i'm expecting therefore things are are kind of downhill from here sometimes we can think very triumphalistically now we we are we've got a great hope a great reason to be optimistic in how things pan out. Uh, sometimes we can want to cover our ears and pretend that disappointments aren't really there, that there are no setbacks, that there's, there's no challenges. Everything is increasingly rosy, heading towards a golden age. It would seem that the church has always had to view it, in actual fact, both ways, to understand, yeah, there are times when The glass would appear half empty. Stephen has been martyred. Antipas has gone. But there are other occasions too when there are great reasons for encouragement. I think that is what we have in store. There are always going to be reasons for encouragement. There are always going to be reasons to kind of say, look, do you see what God is doing in the here and now? Do you you, you see How he's been answering prayer. Three thousand saved and added in a day. And then Stephen dies. But it's, the the story is not over. What the church did when they were, when they were feeling threatened or vulnerable is they prayed, Sovereign Lord, you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, stretch out your hand. They'd taken a hit. They were aware of some hostility. They were aware of some persecution, or a setback, or disappointments. But they didn't, they didn't allow that. They didn't allow that to set the tone, and just become pessimistic in their outlook. Yeah, but they didn't ignore it either. And that's the situation I think in which we are. We find ourselves today, and it's the reason why the New Testament so frequently will say, in the midst of all that's going on. In the midst of reasons to rejoice and reasons to sigh, take heart. Stand firm. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Know that this great and glorious day is coming. Know this, that right now is a good time to be part of his kingdom, which is forcefully advancing. Whilst there are setbacks, people are going to come to know Jesus. Whilst there are setbacks... Prayers are going to be powerfully answered. Whilst there might be disappointments, God is going to intervene in ways in which we uh, hadn't imagined, couldn't possibly dream of. And yet God is seated on a great white throne in glory. He is bringing everything to its rightful conclusion. And we can be comforted and strengthened in the here and now, knowing right now we've got opportunities to play our part in his wonderful kingdom. Let's pray.